uptick, the brand elevation you can get through direct needs to counter the unit velocity you lose by giving up wholesale. And if you can't, then the question is, is that worthwhile? Hi, I'm Daphne Howland. And I'm Ben Unglesby. We're senior reporters with Retail Dive, and this is our podcast where we break down the biggest industry news and trends. And talk about some of the things that don't always make it into our stories. This is The Backroom. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of The Backroom. I'm here today with Simeon Siegel, BMO Capital Markets Managing Director and one of my go-to sources on a whole range of topics in retail and brands. One of the his research reports that caught my eye recently was an in-depth look at basically the importance that wholesale might provide to brands and retailers. This is especially important because so many big brands are kind of pulling away from third-party retail distribution. There were some stunning observations that came out of this research. Simeon, thanks so much for being with us today. Wow. I mean, I think you just told the report better than I can. So, uh, so thank you. Glad to be here. <laughs> well, I didn't. And here's the thing. First of all, this sounded, as I read this, it, it sounded to me like, A, you spent a lot of time crunching numbers. So if you could give us a sense of how long this took, and it also seemed like you were you yourselves were surprised by what was coming out of it. So listen, I think, and you and I talk about this all the time, and it was it was a two-week report that ended up taking six months. When we went through this, what we found was that brands pivoting away from wholesale rather to direct did not see the increase in revenues, did not see the increase in gross margin rate, did not see the increase in operating profit rate, and did not see the increase in operating profit dollars that we've become so accustomed to hearing about. And you and I will dig into this and you and I have talked about this, but I think this notion, there's this obvious factor that having a middleman is a bad thing. Having a middleman charges more fees and therefore people believe eliminate the middleman, you'll eliminate the expense. And it's just not true. And I think the important message to take away is don't embrace all wholesale, but certainly don't diminish it either. So this was mind blowing when I read it. Partly because there has been a drumbeat for at least a couple of years about taking charge of the brand and taking charge of revenues. You actually say in your report, there might be some value in taking charge of your brand, but that doesn't necessarily have to do with the financial side. I'm a, you know me well, I am a huge proponent that qualitative value still needs to at some point be measured quantitatively. So what's interesting is there is no question that a direct business has greater control and greater reach with their customer. There is no question that a direct business can move faster in terms of pivoting a message. The problem is if it doesn't drive gross margin and revenues or profit dollars, what is that value? How do, how do we explain what the value is? So I think what you have to believe is that it's a future value. You have to believe that, that we're not there yet. The problem is we haven't been there yet for the last 10 years either. And there's been this constant, to your point, steady drumbeat towards direct. And that's where I think it does get interesting. So yes, I, I love using the financials. I love using the numbers to help parse out forests and trees. And they're both important. 
But at the end of the day, there's such a negative perception now towards wholesale. And the numbers just argue otherwise. So the report was mind-blowing to me. The The numbers are pretty stark and the charts are amazing. Do you suspect, you know, I'm a reporter who I cover it. I'm not in the business myself. I depend on sources like you and the brands and retailers themselves to give me information. Do you suspect, though, that this might be a surprise to a lot of these brands themselves? Well, I don't have to suspect because I've gotten the calls. But but I, listen, I, I spent a lot of time with companies before and after this report talking it through. And to be honest, and I don't remember if you and I talked about this a decade ago, but, but my team did a very similar report when e-commerce first came out, right? 10, 15 years ago, we had this brand new channel called e-commerce. And e-commerce was by definition, no questions asked, going to be the healthier channel. It was going to be the savior of retail. Right. If we can believe it, we can rewind ourselves and put us back in that mentality. Why? Very obvious. There's no rent. There's no store. Of course, it's a better channel. Well, fast forward over many years, and obviously that has not been the case. If anything, it was the counter. So I remember it's just when intuitive answers exist, they're much easier than actually assessing the numbers. But the numbers tell us where to go. And so I think that that was the story where I'm, I'm talking to a lot of companies and did creating the report as well, that say, this doesn't make sense, Simeon. If I have a shoe or a sweater, it costs me the same dollars to make. I'm obviously going to make more money if I sell it for the full markup in my own channel than if I give it to a department store and sell it for, for half price. And so there's this idea, the same way that it was so obvious that there was no employees and no, or rather no store labor and no store rent with e-com, and yet it was so obvious, didn't manifest into actual margin. That's what we found is the same thing here. And I think the why, and this should be like the follow-up question is, so, so why, how could it be that you don't get the gross margin uptick? And after a lot of different pieces and pulling a lot of different strings, I think this notion of scale is very important. I think if we think about the wholesale businesses are somewhat by definition, the largest brands, that they have so much more scale. And I think as we walk away from that, the uptick, the brand elevation you can get through direct needs to counter the unit velocity you lose by giving up wholesale. And if you can't, then the question is, is that worthwhile? Is it better? And and and, and this is, I'm, I'm hearing your next question because you and I talk about this all the time. Is it better to sell less and charge more? The answer is yes, but the math still has to work. So as you talk, the middleman is emerging as perhaps a more attractive fellow because he can, or he meaning the retailer, which has no gender particularly, but the middleman retailer is able to sell more volume than perhaps your website can. But you mentioned department stores. This is not a channel that's doing particularly well in retail. There's talk about it being an anachronism. A lot of brands are literally saying on their conference calls that they're pulling back from department stores. They'll, they'll name it. Does this mean that brands need a better channel than department stores? Or does it mean that department stores have some hope because maybe brands will look at these numbers and say, we actually need you? So I love that question. Because in addition to all the stories you and I do around whether department stores should spin off, split up, embrace each other, like there's so many interesting department store conversations, but the somewhat 
definitional reality of a department store is they sell a lot of product, right? We know that they have a lot of volume. Sears in its bankruptcy still has a lot of volume. But to the point you just brought up, they're generally not that healthy. So what does that mean? Well, that means they are very effective at selling a lot of things and their own gross margins are pretty low. That means they're very inexpensive way of selling a lot of things for the brands that sell them. So the interesting thing is if you spread out all the margin, if you think about who generates healthy revenues, third-party retailers generally have the lowest margins because they're not selling their own goods. That means they're actually an economic sales distribution channel for a brand that does it right. So if we think about a Nordstrom, and you and I have had many conversations about a Nordstrom, you and I do not, if we're the brand, we do not have to opine on whether or not we think you want to buy Nordstrom as a stock or whether you think Nordstrom is doing their own business correctly. I mean, that's a totally separate, very interesting conversation. If you're the brand, you have to decide, is Nordstrom showing my brand in a healthy way? And what does Nordstrom charge me to do that? Well, if Nordstrom's gross margin is low, that means, like what that means is that they're not charging their brands that much money to do what they do. So I think there's that interesting dynamic where the department stores actually become very cost-effective for the brands by virtue of the fact that the department stores themselves have given up profitability. Does that make sense? Yeah. So could we actually talk about what you found specifically? I mean, you're talking about merchandise margins. I don't know. What what do you think is the best way to break this down? Yeah. So what we found, listen, the most surprising part of this to me. So I, I listed three different or four different interesting conclusions. Revenues didn't go up. Gross margin didn't go up. Profit rate, profit dollars didn't go up. Right. Four things. All of them are surprising. But in retrospect, knowing them to be true, I can explain or at least hypothesize three of them. Why aren't revenues improving? Well, you're getting a higher revenue per unit by going direct, but the units you give up away from wholesale dwarf that and the revenues don't go up. Fine, right? Hypothesis one. Why does an EBIT rate go up? Well, you give up the gross margin lift, which we found to be generally 20 percentage points, 2000 basis points. But by the same token, then you have to embrace OPEX. So let's just use simplified numbers. These are not the real numbers, but simplified. Let's say there's 15 percentage points of rent and 15 percentage points of store of store labor. That's 30 points. You went from an up 20 to a down 30. Now we're down 10, right? So if you don't have stores in your e-com, strip out the labor and the rent, add in pick, pack, ship, fulfill, return, reverse logistics, marketing, et cetera. The operating cost of doing that business overcomes the gross margin benefit. Well, now we've established a reason for, low, for, for not seeing the revenue benefit. We've established a reason for not seeing the profit benefit. If the profit rate is lower and the sales are lower, by definition, mathematically, the profit rate is lower. So that's three out of the four that we can at least come to a, a reasoning behind that seem to make sense. The gross margin is the one that doesn't. Because if we go back to the idea that making a product, selling it at your own channel, you will get a higher markup for the same cost, gross margin has to be higher. So what was so shocking was we took all of our merch margins, our merchandise margins, our product yeah. margins, and we, we ranked them, we stacked them against each other. And what I thought we'd find was that third-party retailers would have the lowest, DTC-only businesses, and again, to, to qualify here, DTC means stores and e-com, so it's direct as opposed to wholesale, it's not e-com as opposed to stores. I'd assume those businesses would have had the highest margins, and then I would have assumed those in between, the brands that embrace wholesale, would be somewhere in the middle. What we found was that third-party retailers were at the low end to the point we were just talking about. Department stores are a very cost-effective way of selling your brand. 
But that's where the rules broke down. And for example, we found that Ralph Lauren, which has call it 40-ish percent wholesale, actually has a higher merch margin, presumably, than Abercrombie and Fitch, which is all, which is almost entirely direct. So there's this element, and I'm just using those as to an example, but we got stuck pulling this string of why would it be that these large brands that embrace wholesale that should have a chunk of their business, again, Ralph's scenario, call it 40% of their business, doing business at 20% lower margin than they otherwise would direct, why would they not, right? Why would they not be lower down on the spectrum? And I think that's where we let, we, we essentially led, got led down the path to these have much higher unit velocity. The, they have much higher scale, much higher buying power when they go to their factories. And that's what brought us to the conversation of as companies walk away from those units, it's very hard to offset the gains that they see from the higher price point. But that's the part that I think is still hypothesis. That's the part where we're still pulling that string because that's the one big part of this report that we we still, I mean, still seems incredibly surprising. So the whole concept of scale is such a conversation in the current environment that nurtures so many startups and disruptive companies in retail. Is this potentially... I, I don't know. I'm asking you to speculate, and you just told me how much you love the numbers. But is this potentially an attitude that if we keep at this long enough and and have faith or grow it and wait for it to scale, that it will work out? Or do you think it's more a potentially a misunderstanding of what's going on? Yeah. So I so I love the question, and I'm I'm definitely a person of faith, but I I do I think that. What's happening is this notion, right? And you and I have talked about shrink to grow a lot. You and I have talked about selling less and charging more. I think what happened is there's brands that have internalized that their wholesale distribution hit a certain level of saturation. I think what happened is there's a certain amount of brands that realized that at the end of the day, they needed to embrace, they needed to embrace change. And what that meant was probably more an indication they had stretched wholesale too far than it was that they thought direct would be this next true avenue of growth, whether they internalize that or not. So no, I I don't think, my own view is, I don't think direct can scale to the same level that wholesale was there because I think exactly this notion of oversaturating a brand often leads to under-elevating the brand or oversaturation leads to diminished brand equity. And I think that the point of going direct is to sell less and charge more. But the question is, what? how does that number really work? And I think, listen, there's an interesting dynamic here. And you and I have talked about this. One, people pay Salesforce internally. So a department store is a, perhaps a cheaper version of that Salesforce. But two, and this, is, this always gets to me, there's no company, especially on the early digitally native stage, that doesn't use a marketing agency. And, I, and I'm being hyperbolic here, but most companies that are maniacally focused on protecting their brand distribution, and God forbid they would allow a third party to sell, help them sell their product, almost every one of those companies still fully embraces using a third party to help them tell their story. So the fact that people don't balk at third party marketers, is very interesting to me, given how clearly they balk at third party sellers, when one is the entire imagery of your company and the other is a distribution of your product. So I think that they're both very similar in that we need to figure out who the right partners are, both economically and storytelling from a visual perspective, rather than simply ignore one or the other. I just have to say that it's tempting to read 
into some of these discoveries and some of your observations that there's was some kind of over promise when it comes to disruption. We're, I feel like we're talking about retail fundamentals. A good store sells well, as opposed to trying to connect with the customer directly. I don't know if that means that's too many jobs for a brand or, you know, expertise lies with certain businesses, certain sectors. I'm just kind of ruminating on the kinds of topics that I think about when I think about these stories, but it does feel a little bit like some of the disruption that we've written about for the past 10 years isn't quite as, maybe it was a little too disruptive or not disruptive in the right way. I love that. I think you're dead. Listen, disruption should not mean destruction. I think that's very important. I think that selling a product to a consumer trading a product from one person to another goes to the heart of what it is to be human. I don't know if that's true, but it sounds good in my head. But this idea that if you and I were to say, if, if you and I were to say, what is one of the absolute most attractive parts of retail? What are one of the most attractive subsectors of retail? You and I have talked about it. What is the segment people want to spin off from Nordstrom? It's the off-price segment, right? Off-price is viewed as one of the most powerful forces within retail. Their market caps are the largest. Their consistency is one of the best. What do they do? They take someone's product. They sell it at a good price. They don't get overly excited about technology. They don't get overly excited about the selling experience. They just say, I've got a good product at the right price. I'm in the right locations. Done. It's old school retail. There's nothing wrong with old school retail. Now, by the same token, there's everything wrong with ignoring technological advancements. So I think if you can marry the notion of what old school retail was and drastically improve your selling experience, improve your inventory management, improve your back. Like there's obviously plenty of things you could do and not everyone has the fortunate ability to be an off pricer, but retail is not dead. And I think that what's important is this idea. You and I talk about this a lot. It's very easy to call the end of a brand. Revenues are the best measure of customer buy-in because definitionally that's what it is. Gross margin is a great measure of external brand perception. You can have a lot of revenues and have no profits. That does not mean you're a dead brand. It means you're sick, right? It means you're selling less and you can, it means you're under earning because you're over selling and by selling less, you could probably make more money. But that's, that's that instance. You have to go look at that. And so I think the notion of what retail was should still be what retail is and what retail will be with added advancements and kind of ensuring that you can go along with what's new. But this notion of simply let's just destroy what has been laid down before for these still very, very big companies. I mean, remember, you and I talked about this for Victoria's Secret at the beginning of the pandemic. Victoria's Secret was, quote, a dead brand, and yet they had over $5 billion selling lingerie and and sweatpants. You're obviously not dead. They never stopped being the market leader in the U.S. Exactly. Which you had to point out to me. I think it's easy to see. It's easy to be hyperbolic. It's easy to see what we are hearing and what's most important because it's consumer. You're you're a journalist. I'm an analyst. We both do this professionally. And yet we both also shop the product. And when you shop the product, it's easy to get sucked into it. Listen, I've got however many pairs of Warby Parker glasses right here. And maybe I'm wearing my Allbirds. And yet both those two businesses, whether they're good businesses or not, I'm not opining, but they're drastically smaller businesses than let's say a Nike and, and another glasses company. So 
I just, I think that it's easy for us to get wrapped up in the things we love. I mean, you and I've had this conversation many a time on Peloton. It's just very easy for us to, as users, to magnify how big a company actually is. And unless it's fraudulent, the only thing that doesn't lie are the numbers. Well, and to be fair, I mean, I think as a lot of startups climb up the ladder towards scale, they present a situation that's very attractive to a consumer, which is a nice product at a really good price. That's part of why their balance sheets are a little bit off. <laughs> you definitely have to ignore your experience as a consumer to, a, to an extent and pay attention to the numbers. I just think revenues are really important. And I know that sounds really simplistic. And I know that sounds like, an, like a, what's the insight there? But I think a lot of times we focus on revenue growth. And at the end of the day, revenue growth is very important only insofar as it gets us to what your revenues will be. But you can learn a lot about a company based on how big its revenues are. We've seen a lot of companies kind of cost of acquisition their way, right? Cack their way to $100 million in revenues and at $200 million fizzle because they didn't have sustainable business models. We've seen a lot of companies at $3 billion have kind of giving up some revs, but still be very healthy businesses. So I just, I think that how big a company is, is literally the approx. It's not the approximation. It's the definition of how many consumers believe in their product. And it helps you address audience sizes. And you can be a phenomenal, listen, luxury businesses have phenomenal cult-like followings with tremendous pricing power. And they're drastically smaller more often than not than let's say an old Navy. What you want to be, it's not good or bad. It's just knowing who your audience is and how large that audience should be. Another question I have might be a little bit too close to home for you, but <laughs> um, is Wall Street helping skew some of these perceptions? You know, um, the whole talk about the e-commerce spinoff at a few of the department stores, which we talked about at length, seems to be really driven by the idea of e-commerce as being a more valuable business than an old school brick and mortar retailer. Is the willingness to invest in the technologically or what's perceived as a technologically driven internet company skewing some of these perceptions? So I have no business talking for either side, but I so much prefer when you ask me to talk, speak on behalf of retailers than on Wall Street. <laughs> Just kidding. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I know, so I'm, I'm, I'm not, it's not so much behalf of anyone. I'm just wondering if the Money, you know, money yeah. is a river that flows. And if we're watching it flow in one direction, I just wonder if it's coloring a wider perception about e-commerce and tech. So listen, I think we all know that Wall Street only does good and that the money that Wall Street supports is is objectively righteous and <laughs> literally only good. And I'm very curious how sarcasm translates over a podcast. So well, with that, I um, literally am thinking about various scenes in <laughs> Wall Street as you said that. So I yes. think you succeeded. Yes. Well, so with, with, with that said, I think that it's a complicated question. I, I think that clearly Wall Street does provide funding, which obviously is very important. And hopefully Wall Street also takes companies to task and ensures that they are not misleading. So, so I think that there's very normative and, and kind of moral conversations to be had. That's not the one you're asking. At the end of the day, retailers need to operate the way they should be operating. The funding mechanisms behind that are absolutely critical to their health. 
but hopefully are not determinative of the choices that they make. So whether that is true or not is a separate conversation. There is no question, you and I know it, that right now, rightly or wrongly, having stores, even if they are incredibly cash flow positive, is perceived as a negative. Does that make sense? Probably not. But is that happen? Yeah. And, and how do we know it? Because digitally native brands that don't have stores carry high mark, higher market caps than much larger businesses that do. So that's just something we can see. We know it to be fair. So recognizing that, does it make sense that there are financiers that say, well, if I have a very healthy econ business and a very healthy store business and together they're being worth less, should they be separated? I'm not going to, I'm not going to say they should be separated, but I understand where that conversation, that question comes from. But the reality is going back to the very first point, that's only if operationally, like that's a financial engineering conversation. And if you can financial engineer your, your way to something without having an impact on the operations, who am I to stop you? But the real question is, is it realistic to do that with the strongest caveat that I dropped in very quickly of does it impact the operations? At the end of the day, the last 15 years has been a story of creating seamless inventory, of creating synergies, of getting to an omni perspective. I think that what is so fascinating to me is how quickly omni went from saying, make sure to have e-com along with your stores to now meaning just be an e-com business, right? An e-com business is not an omni-channel operation. So I think it's so important. I think that there's obviously a financial conversation going on. I think that it's probably easy. We've seen a lot of people step into retail saying, sell your real estate. I think the easiest way to think about it is if you're not going to want to be left holding what you have now sold from, it's probably not a very helpful transaction. We've seen a lot of some of the parts and ultimately you have to have a viable case for both. They don't have to be worth the same. But you have to have a viable case for both and believing it's not going to hamper the operations to really justify the move. If you can, again, I'm not going to be the one to step in front of you, but it should be a pretty, like that, that magnifying glass should be important. We should make sure we understand that operationally, this is a helpful, health, a healthy conversation, as opposed to simply saying people pay more for e-com, so check your stores. So magnifying glass is definitely a good analogy for what you have done in this report. And it does also, that also goes back to operationally and decision-making just to break our fourth wall here. Simeon, is there anything else I should have asked that I didn't ask? Listen, you know, you know me, that's my danger question because uh, that's, that's the one where I start rambling. I've learned not to answer that question. So I, <laughs> I probably should just stick to that and say, yes, I'm sure there are plenty of questions that we have not touched on, but learning from my, my own past mistakes I'm going to go with, no, we got everything. That's been great. <laughs> I think that's a great place to wrap it up. Simeon, thanks so much for coming to talk to me today. And I know I'll be talking to you regularly on my stories because I'm always bothering you to help me out. I love our chats. It is never a bother. I know we're, we're wrapping up now, but I'm sure this will, uh, <laughs> the beauty of retail is it's constantly evolving. So here's one thing I will say, actually, this report from Simeon and BMO is really in-depth and very important. And Simeon, I know you said you're doing some more research. I'm going to continue following this topic as well. So if any of you out there have anything to add to this conversation, I'm going to be reporting on this with Simeon's help and would love to get more voices and perspectives as as I cover it. Simeon, thanks so much as always. I really appreciate speaking with you. My pleasure. The feeling is mutual and look forward to doing it again. 
This episode of The Backroom was produced and edited by Caroline Jansen. Please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.